Hello and welcome to Runway Girl Network In Conversation, a deep dive into aviation and the passenger experience. I'm RGN Deputy Editor John Walton and today I'm in conversation with Marissa Garcia, aviation journalist and RGN contributing editor. Welcome to the podcast, Marissa. Thank you, John. So today we're talking about the role that Airline Trade Association IATA plays and indeed delving deep into the trends coming out of the annual general meeting in Sydney. But first, thanks to our sponsor. In Conversation is brought to you by Bolteron, a Simona company, purveyor of high-performance thermoplastics for tomorrow's aircraft interiors. With new and groundbreaking innovations in design capabilities, Bolteron offers airlines the ability to customise a cabin with lightweight materials with metallic effects, translucent decorative panels with unique embedded patterns, dynamic textures, vibrant pearlescence, and much more. Learn more at boltaron.com. Now, Marissa, that was certainly an eventful time in Sydney this month, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Quite a trip. <laughs> I can't recall a single IATA AGM that was as widely covered as this one, but not because of the Trade Association's agenda, but because of its chairman's comments about women aviation executives. Now, Marissa, what exactly did new chairman Akbar al-Bakar of Qatar Airways say? Well, he started off so strong, uh, promising that as a chairman of IATA, he would no longer make any controversial comments. And no more than seven minutes after that declaration, um, he answered a, a reporter from the UAE who asked about, you know, advancement of women in uh, leadership roles in aviation. Uh, first, he tried to sort of circumvent the question by saying that uh, Qatar Airways has a number of uh, female pilots and, uh, you know, a, a large percentage of female staff. Um, but she was very pointed and said, well, what would it take for a woman CEO? And uh, that, that's when um, Al-Bakr uh, said that, well, uh, you know, the, the job is too complicated. So that would be a man, um, that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but that was very close to the language. Um, and, of course, everybody just sort of gasped because it was not only a silly thing to say, um, whether he was being facetious, which is, you know, I guess close to what he claims or, um, or whether he was being serious is irrelevant. It was just politically a stupid thing to say. So someone who um, uh, even would be in a position of that responsibility would have two fingers of sense to know that you just don't make statements like that. And it was also just pretty irresponsible to say it to a female journalist in front of a bunch of journalists when you know you're being recorded. Um, and then, of course, there's the third aspect, which is that, um, you know, it, it was just after he said he was going to start uh, to stop saying silly things. Um, so all in all, it, it was a very, a, a very surprising, but it, it, I, I don't want to say surprising because it is Al Becker. And I think he's uh, almost infantile in that sense that he really can't help himself. You know, he may have the best of intentions to um, to behave in, in a more politically correct or or responsible manner with his uh, with his wording. But he just can't help himself. It's just whatever it is that he's thinking comes out. And um, not that it's good. Obviously, it's it's a very bad way to look at the world. Um, and uh, and I suppose it 
sort of negates his own argument that he's somehow more uniquely capable than the next woman down the line might be, since the next woman down the line might have enough good sense not to do any of that, um, one might say. (laughs) Well, exactly. And it seemed to me especially foolish to do it in Australia, where there is a history of very successful women aviation CEOs. Um, Yes, it's true. I mean, you have Jane Hudlitzker, who has just left uh, Jetstar after an incredibly successful tenure. Um, you have Meryn MacArthur, just appointed to Virgin Australia's low-cost arm Tiger Air. Uh, this is literally the place in the world where you have a, a, a key set of examples of, of women running successful airlines and being very successful in the industry. And a history of strong women in, in, on the whole. Indeed. Indeed, um, you know you have got uh, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard. There's all sorts of all sorts of examples um, w- within the region. Um, now, I-, I feel there's also a little bit of um, the the politics of this, um, and I'm not talking political correctness. I'm talking actual politics, um, mm-hmm. which was his his statement put out in. Um, well, I certainly didn't receive it via email, though I get every other Cataraway's press release. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they just released it on Twitter. Yes. Um, Saying that oh the press blew this out of proportion and uh, I was I was misquoted and all that sort of um, nonsense which rather precludes the idea that it was a a funny ha ha joke no matter how funny or ha ha one thinks it might have been it goes to the same thing you see he's just uh, I mean it is a very much a, um, a from the top leadership. Uh, airline. There's no uh, going against whatever Albecker wants to do or say within the airline. So it's it's his mandate that that statement go out. I'm sure, uh, and his wording behind it. And it was, uh, you know, it, again reflects a, an incredible lack of understanding of what he's saying. I, I mean, it was obviously not the press blowing anything out of context or out of proportion or anything. It was. I mean, it was recorded to be his words. Um, the fact that he could not even bring himself to apologize like a mature person would, you know, saying, I said a very stupid and careless thing, um, and I look the fool for it, and I'm ashamed of that. But it's not the way, it's not reflective of the values of our airline. It's not reflective of who we are as an organization. That really was all he needed to say, but he can't bring himself to say those words. He has to scapegoat the press, scapegoat, uh, you know, uh, social media, whatever he wanted to do. Um, Yeah, and and it it frustrates me because Qatar Airways does actually have senior women executives. Um, (laughs) I sat with uh, Salaman Shawa in a a lounge less than six months ago, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of discussing that this was after they just launched their their Chiang Mai route. Um, And and that was an incredibly well-executed marketing partnership with a tourism authority, which is exactly the sort of innovations that that, that airlines need to be driving. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And she directed and executed that very well with... Um, perhaps unsurprisingly in PR roles, but a number of very capable women from all across the world. Uh, And it it Mm -hmm. really did frustrate me. And it also frustrated me that um, both the airline, who are really, as you say, it is a very top-down airline. It is an extension of Al-Bakr. Al-Bakr is an extension of the airline. Mm -hmm. But both the airline and IATA didn't get out in front of this story in in a way that gives me confidence in their sincerity about promoting gender equality in aviation, right? If I'm, if I'm Iata, if I'm Qatar Airways, I produce a, a, a short YouTube video of him sitting somewhere um, 
possibly even talking to a, a senior woman within his airline um, or a senior woman journalist within aviation, um, essentially as the, as the, the mea culpa tour to, to, to apologise for these remarks, to clarify um, and to take responsibility. Um, I think there was a role for, for the airline in that and I think there was a role for IATA in that. Um, not just to issue uh, statements, uh, not in the same medium that it was that it was created. Um, yeah, I, I I I thought that was a a real miss on the part of both the association and the airline. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you on the airline. I think for IATA, you're you're probably right, but I think it was a kind of a trap for them, you know, because they didn't want to be seen as undermining their own uh, decision making process in selecting um, Al for this role. And it's a little bit of a he just kind of created this uncomfortable situation. They tried to do it by highlighting um, what they have done that's positive to, by by putting the conversation around their um, agenda to support. Um, women in the industry, and and the, to their credit, aside from that statement from Al Bakar, the association does seem rather committed to at least promoting this agenda. Um, and whether it's successful or not will depend quite a lot on how much of it is talk and how much of it is walk. Um, but uh, you know, if they can just focus the message on that, um, then perhaps it, it'll all wash over. Uh, in time, I don't think that anybody can really expect Al Becker to change his ways. He is who he is, and you know it's worked for him um, to a degree. And and he's in a in a privileged and comfortable position that it only really has to work for him <laughs> to a degree. You know, other people who would have to defend their jobs would probably not be able to get away with any of this. But um, you know, that's it's a unique case, and. Um, he continues to be a curiosity for all of us to observe. <laughs> well, well, indeed. Um, and, and from the art perspective, it does sound a little bit like um, the leopards eating people's faces party. You know, <laughs> the, the, I'd never thought leopards would eat my face, complains the person who voted for leopards eating people's faces party. I mean, you get what you got. You know, you, 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 yeah. you can't complain if you order lasagna that you got pasta with melted cheese and red sauce. Right? And that's, that, that's what you got. Um, yeah. But I, I think that IATA also needs to do some really strong introspection about how it walks the walk. Um, the the all-male, all-old white male panel um, discussing women in aviation just made me roll my eyes so hard, Marissa. I just, I can't imagine that there are not a, a series of senior women. And indeed, our, our, our friend Gim Leo uh, from, from Flight Global, she posted a full list of, of senior women in aviation, um, perhaps not at CEO role, right? I mean, we can't always roll out the same handful of women, um, you know, whether it's uh, Christine Ormier from Flybe or, or formerly Jane Hudlitzker or um, formerly Carolyn McCall of EasyJet. Um, right. We can't just keep rolling out the same women. But there are numerous capable women in aviation, even if it's not at CEO role, right? They're at the, at the um, sort of EVP, C-suite uh, sort of level. How interesting would it have been to have had the women who are next level CEOs in that conversation rather than the actual CEOs themselves? I, I would have found that much more interesting. And I think it would have been much more of, a, um, of an example that you can be successful in aviation if you are a woman. Um, they, they, they did have a Q&A conversation among two leading women as a separate part of the agenda. 
um, which was an interesting talk where they both uh, shared their their experiences um, in aviation. So there was an attempt to do that. But again, the, the uh, panel of the CEOs was just... Um, it was almost like a situation where they had to answer the question because it came from the public of how would you handle women. But the answers were so reflective of how little thought this, this is given, you know, it's almost frustrating to see these men struggle with a concept that is really uh, just alien to them. You can tell because they're, they're not really prepared to answer it in a responsible way that shows that they, believe women could do their job. You know, in, in fairness, Al Bakaru said the words and they were bad words to say, but in in some ways, other people are simply living those words, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. They won't say them, um, but their thinking is still driven by that, um, by that assumption that somehow their maleness makes them specially qualified um, to do what is really not that complicated a job. Um, to be honest, because, you know, the, the most complex jobs in aviation are not at the CEO level. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, airlines are just large corporations. Exactly. Any, 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 you know, any number of those worldwide. Um, but I also, I, I, I commend yeah. your, your uh, op-ed for, for RGN on this one as well. It's just sort of looking at, at how refreshing it was in, in some ways to, to have someone who was not indeed walking, uh, talking a talk that they do not walk. Um, and that that's also some some real food for thought, I think, for the industry about um, you know what what there is left to do in terms of truly persuading uh, everyone that that women have a place in this industry, that women are just as capable as men. Um, and, and and yeah, it's 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 something of which you know I both of us are, are, are to an extent preaching to the choir here, um, but. It, it, it really continues to frustrate me that, that there's not more engagement with this. Um, well, you know, in my experience, and as you know, John, I, I was an executive um, in the industry before I became a writer and I was uh, leading my business. Um, there's this sort of just this mindset that, that somehow women have some, some barrier or need to be helped to get this done. And that's just nonsense. Obviously, um, women know what they need to do and they, and guys just need to get out of the way in that sense. Um, but I understand that, you know, these are the profitable jobs. Um, and you know, that, that money and power drives this, um, women want it and, and men don't want to give it up. Um, so, you know, that's going to be a fight. It's, it's an eternal struggle. I don't think that it's as easily overcome as just saying, well, let's all be nice and understanding of each other because there is, there is money and power in the way. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be conflicting. Um, and, and the bottom line is that women can help make airlines very profitable. Um, and that should be the driver. That should be the, the consideration at the end of the day, um, because there are no special um, skill set. There is no special skill set that you really have to bring into the equation other than knowing how to manage people and how to manage assets um, and you know, how to manage uh, the markets. If you know those three things, um, whether or not you've worked in aviation before, that could be a plus or a minus. Um, 
you know, what, what really matters is that you can be an effective CEO. Um, and we've seen women CEOs in the industry prove that uh, by coming from other industries, coming in, doing terrific jobs. Carolyn McCall is a great example, doing terrific jobs of turning around the airline and then moving on to do very successful CEO jobs in other industries as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know. <laughs> Karen Paul, who's just gone to um, ITV, the British television company. Um, Jane Hudlitzka, who's gone to, um, I believe, a, a dairying company in Australia. Um, I think you hit, on the, hit the nail on the head. Um, it is a series of transferable global corporate skills um, mm-hmm. that, 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 that are, are, are not in many ways unique. Um, I think there, there are some uniquenesses about aviation, but they're not necessarily the uniquenesses that a CEO needs to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the, some of those the, those characteristics and those you know decades of experience in a particular sector are required, um, particularly when it comes to some of the hard assets, some of the political negotiations, and so on. Uh, but I, I I I do agree with you. There is there is. Uh, airlines, I think, need to be doing much more looking outside of the existing pipeline for mm-hmm. for CEOs, um, which I think will give bring more diversity in in every in every effect, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that's that 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 that's crucial. Now, in addition, let's let's talk about the actual agenda uh, of <laughs> the Arta AGM. Airlines have been calling for regulation, and in some cases, re-regulation of airports. Um, I I know you find this a little bit ironic, Marissa. I do too. Um, let's let's have a let's have a, a dive into this. Why do airlines want airports regulated or re-regulated in some cases? Well, um, privatized airports are being proving profitable, but not for airlines, basically, um, and they're not proving to be, according to airlines, effective infrastructure. Um, the the resources. Um, are being dedicated to building revenue from things like retail uh, and dining um, and not necessarily to improving the functionality of operations um, for the core application of taking planes for planes to take off and land on time. Um, And some of the, um, the push, the financing has gone into building huge facilities that are what, uh, some of the um, uh, airline representatives refer to as, you know, diamond uh, uh, giants or, um, you know, just just overdone uh, facilities. And um, so they're, they're concerned that privatized airports are going to effectively push the needs of airlines to a secondary consideration as they try to build retail businesses. Here's the irony, though, in all of this. Um, there's truth to that, you know, obviously. Um, they're, they're not wrong. Um, but they want to have um, airports function as infrastructure um, and critical infrastructure, which they are, um, and be financed by governments um, to be supported, which governments may or may not be able to do. Um, and, and kept at a standard of airport charges that are sustainable by the airline, which are difficult to define um, because, you know, airlines uh, sometimes have um, dominance in, uh, in particular airports and may already get preferential 
charges um, simply by being the the main um, rooster <laughs> of the uh, of the location. But there's at the end of the day, airports are also real estate, and while um, there are rules about infrastructure being governed and and regulated to benefit um, society, real estate has uh, a policy of, you know, whatever the market will bear, location, location, location. That's what makes it critical. And it's airlines that choose to primarily operate out of certain airports um, that have become overcrowded, that have become overburdened, because that's basically where their root structure has developed and um, that's maybe where their uh, hubs are located and their uh, core maintenance facilities are located. But they may be directing flights out of the way, you know, creating Mm -hmm. flight paths that are um, too hub and spoke focused rather than point to point, which may not be a benefit to passengers and it may not be a benefit to communities that have developed secondary airports that have invested in creating um, those facilities so that airport uh, airlines can take advantage of them. And the ones who have been taking advantage of those, of course, have been low-cost carriers who have been bringing stiff competition to the established uh, players uh, in the industry over the years. Um, and, it, you know, of course, the, the, the low-cost carriers, even even uh, Ryanair, have complained about airport charges too and have complained about um, the, the same infrastructure uh, problems um, from privatized airports. So it's, it's a common thread with them. Um, but you can't, uh, you know, to a degree, you can't say we're going to privatize airlines and stay out of airlines and don't re-regulate airlines um, leave, leave them to be as profitable as possible uh, with the thin margins they have going for them, all of which is very fair to say. But, oh, let's have a different policy for airports, though. Um, no matter where the money comes from, if it comes from the local community or if it comes from a business that has taken off the burden from the local community, let's make sure that it's equ- as equally unprofitable as running an airline might be. <laughs> um, the difference is, of course, airlines uh, can offload their assets very quickly. You know, if they can't um, operate effectively, they can, you know, lease out planes, sell back planes, just leave planes in the desert, whatever they need to do. Um, airports cannot get rid of the land. Um, they cannot uh, tear down the buildings and reshape themselves. Um, so it's it's uh, a little bit of a different circumstance in terms of asset management there. Um, yeah, but one of the things I find really interesting is that some airports, I, I'm particularly thinking of um, in Australia, some airports have previously, uh, largely during the process of privatisation, acquired a very large estate, which they do not presently need. Uh-huh. So, for example, in Canberra, the IKEA is built essentially just off the runway at Canberra Airport um, because there's already um, reasonable road access to the airport. Um, There's a lot of space. And actually, an IKEA doesn't cost that much to build. And if you have to knock it down in 30 years, no one's going to complain too much to build an extra (laughs) runway or whatever. Um, That seems smart. But the problem that I keep running into is airlines both want to pay low landing fees and they want new infrastructure. And I feel like the the third part of that tripod is that, well, okay, then you have to fund the airport from somewhere. Mm 
which is a lot of the stuff the airlines are complaining about, right? The, the expensive restaurants, the large shopping malls, and some of the things that passengers complain about, right? The, the inevitable duty-free labyrinth um, <laughs> that, you know, you have to sprint through dodging milling shoppers. And I'm convinced that they make those things, the, the little walkways, just wide enough so that some people with some uh, rolling luggage come back and roll over your toe as you're trying to as you're trying to run through. Um, and I'm sure that at some of them, they have to employ people specifically to walk in the other direction in a loop, um, the amount of milling that goes on in those, in those duty-free shops. Um, but it does seem a little bit to me that sometimes you, 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 you can't really have your cake and eat it too if you're an airline complaining about airports. Um, you have to put your money where your mouth is, like a Lufthansa, right? Lufthansa co-owns its terminal in Munich with the airport authority, um, which is, I believe, a largely public sector, if if privately privately owned public sector company sort of arrangement, right. and that continues to strike me as one of the most effective and pleasant airports in Europe. British Airways, meanwhile, um, has its Heathrow operations spread over two terminals, um, previously more, um, and it's it's it can be a real faff. And T uh, five isn't that great anyway i mean you've got the the it's not a duty-free labyrinth but you've got to make the whole big tour around and 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 pass all of the all of the shops um it strikes me that that there is i feel like there is room for improvement here both in passenger experience and uh certainly in uh in in, in operations but that i airlines seem to me to have more of the levers to pull here than i think they'd like us to believe uh, do, do you agree with that? Yes, yes. I think that um, I think that it's just a necessary rhetoric that has to be there because if if airlines don't continue to lobby for this uh, extreme, if you will, of uh, um, undoing uh, the ills, uh, supposed ills of privatization, then they will, you know, they risk that that will just continue to spread and become too costly for them. So they have to say it. Um, but I think that their expectation um, is probably more realistic that there will always be um, a hybrid. And I think one of the concerns that they have right now, really, what the what the big push is about, is um, the potential of privatization in the U.S. You know, because the U.S. has had um, you know a unique uh, airport infrastructure, um, you know, really just government supported. Um, and it's in need of help. Um, this is in, something that's well known and that ACI um, in the U.S. is, is working to lobby uh, in favor of support to, to correct. Um, but one of the um, statements made out, um, you know, by the administration is that, you know, there may be a, a, a private business uh, support for that. Um, and uh, as, a, as a way of financing uh, improvements in infrastructure in general. And that would introduce the risk uh, to the U.S. as well, and that's a, that's a big thing. Um, if, if you started to have a, a public-private partnership situation there. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that they just, um, yeah, they, they're, they're going to always have to balance airlines um, between their needs um, and the, and what the market will determine, you know, at the end of the day. And, you know, they're right. And, and you are right to say that's what some airports are doing is a little 
bit nonsense in terms of going to the other extreme of uh, excessive retailing. I know some, as you say, some of the duty-free pathways are seem intended to send you in the wrong direction. You know, when you're really trying to make it to your gate and you just can't make it through that labyrinth and you end up going through security a second time. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just a little bit um, uh, just in- uncomfortable. Um, so there are extremes and, and there are reasons to be concerned that they might um, you know, lose sight of the of the core objective. But again, um, if market factors were to be unleashed, one could argue that you know it, that airlines might um, expect to gain something from airports, for example, over investing than having um, that facilities needing to uh, to refocus on. Um, on on satisfying airline needs, um, but you know it's it's uh, it's going to be an ongoing discussion, I think, for the next decade or so. Um, and I don't think they can completely um, reverse the the push towards privatization because people don't really want to pay taxes for aviation infrastructure either. That's the other problem. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on, we had some uh, interesting movements around alliances at the AGM. Um, You had Fiji Airways joining as an associate member of uh, the One World Alliance, um, joining Star Alliance in this this programme. I believe it was 2016 when I was at a meeting of the Star Alliance folks in Zurich um, that uh, Chinese airline Juniyao joined as as an affiliate uh, to that alliance. And I think they just, they they finished that uh, process last year. so they're now moving into these sort of common digital strategies, joint backbones, and so on, um, as well as, you know, on the Star Alliance side, looking into, uh, or at least floating the idea of um, an increased set of uh, frequent flyer tiers uh, cross-recognized across all the Alliance airlines. Um, it strikes me that that that's, is one way to, to drive loyalty. Um, but what do you think, Marissa? W- will it work? Is the are they are they doing the right thing here, or are they sort of tilting at windmills um, in, in terms of making alliances more relevant? Um, well, you know, I think that um, there's two factors at play here. Um, the first function of alliances um, originally was to overcome um, the limitations of um, international ownership. Um, and at the same time, forge uh, efficiencies of scale. So from the point of view of um, alliances setting standards, helping to direct uh, connections between flyers going around the globe and uh, ensuring sort of a standard of of service, um, that's still relevant and that's going to continue to be relevant. Um, One of the questions I asked about um, the Fiji introduction to One World is whether one world will continue to apply standards to these uh, second tier. Uh, one world connect um, members, um, and and by that I mean simply, you know, in terms of scrutiny and auditing and type things like that. And they do plan to have a slightly lighter hand with that, so it's not as expensive for an airline to become a a, um, a second tier member, um, which which makes sense, but. Um, you know, the other part of it is that alliances help increase the value of loyalty programs. 
And loyalty programs are a major revenue builder for airlines. They have been for many years. Um, it's it's literally just banking cash. You know, um, you're you're setting your own currency and you're deciding how you're going to make the most of it. Um, so it's a, if it's well managed, um, loyalty programs are extremely good revenue drivers and you want to keep the value of that collective currency high by making sure that, you know, when you offer um, perks and, um, and benefits to members across the alliance, they're still relevant um, and they're still attractive. So in that sense, it's really good. And a third aspect of it is that, you know, the, the original uh, cause for, for alliances of um, limited foreign ownership will continue to be a problem, at least for a while. I asked about that during IATA, too. Um, and the thinking is that um, limited ownership will probably um, begin to vanish in, over the next uh, decade. Um, and in all restrictions, um, and that it's uh, almost inevitable that airlines will become global businesses with uh, regional brands, if you will, with local brands. Um, that um, would change things in terms of how the um, operations really run um, and would bring some efficiencies of scale, if you will. But I don't think it would uh, take away the benefits of having um, alliances anyway. You know, I mean, it, 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 you could call it an alliance or you could call it a, a house brand. Eventually, it's going to be one of the two things. Um, and uh, so we'll see. It's an interesting evolution for now. I think from the consumer point of view, the alliance as it is right now is less relevant. I mean, at least, I, speaking for myself, really wouldn't say that my case is, is true of everyone, but for myself, I, I don't even find loyalty programs as meaningful anymore because I would much rather um, fly as it suits me from time to time. And I'll accept, mm -hmm. I'll accept the mileage, um, of course, when, when given, but um, it, it, you know, I would rather fly in a route that, that is convenient than fly because I have a card of any one particular airline. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one, and 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 I think that that that's that's a key evolution. Is the it, it seems very strange that as airlines are starting to recognise that they have these massive businesses, the actual loyalty that people have, unless they're caught in one of these fortress hubs that particularly exists in the, the in the US, right? Um, if that's not you, the actual amount of loyalty that you have is very low. Um, and I say this as someone who plays the mileage game, who has the miles earning credit cards and who loves redeeming miles for um, the once a year premium cabin splurge. Um, but for the rest of the year flies low cost carrier economy around Europe and then whatever is cheapest around the rest of the world. And I think it's really interesting that, that Star Alliance is starting to, in some ways, catch up with One World here um, by proposing this sort of uh, a first class tier. Because right now they only have gold, which is the business class tier. Right, you get in the business lounges, you don't get in the first class lounges. Um, and some of those Star Alliance first class lounges are excellent. But if you're not captive to a, a Star Alliance hub, and you do fly enough and on expensive enough tickets, um, and in, in the ways that airlines want to encourage to earn that top tier one world status, 
it is very strange to me that people would choose to look to earn Star Alliance and only get into the business class lounge um, and only get business class level perks rather than uh, a, an alliance-wide first class level of perk. Um, even as first class continues to disappear um, and the first class loungers become your um, uh, top tier loungers and so on. Um, look, look at Finnair as, as one example of that. Um, they don't even have a first class, um, but they do offer a platinum lounge uh, at, their, at their home hub. Um, and it, it, it's very interesting to me um, how just just how the changes in this are going and how the evolution of uh, of alliances in terms of um, the, the technology backbone in particular. Um, I believe that Star Alliance just put uh, something in place recently to deal with reciprocal mileage earning. And I've seen floating by on my Twitter feed a number of people saying, oh, wow, it only took three or four days for, um, for this uh, non-automatically crediting mileage claim to be processed, whereas before it had been weeks and involved telephone conferences with two airlines. And, and at that point, people are just so frustrated with the whole thing that's supposed to drive happiness and contentment with the brand um that 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 it's a that it's a, it's a, it's a pointless exercise um but yeah it's 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 so interesting where, where do you think alliances are going next marissa i think that they're just going to go wherever it is that the that the jvs are are unable to cover if you will mm. um because i think that the jvs are basically taking over in terms of uh, for airline relevance that that's certainly a predominant, you know, it's the predominant factor. Um, but in terms of uh, on the consumer side, I think that they're just going to be establishing that appetite for the catalog brand uh, within a, a um, within a um, a major corporation, you know, within a joint corporation. I think IH, um, IAG is where we need to look at uh, the future of airlines. Um, that's really where we're headed. You know, of course, right now they're limited, um, to European, um, brands. Um, but that sort of catalog approach is what we'll see working internationally at time over time. And I think uh, one world as it is may, um, may function as part of a loyalty scheme management, um, uh, profile, uh, but it will become less relevant as whatever um, the next IAG becomes in in uh, in aviation, you know, uh, globally. Um, I think that that that's where we're headed. Yeah, I agree with you. And and you know, looking from a passenger experience point of view, you just have to look at back to the. Uh, aircraft Interiors Expo in April with Lufthansa buying seats for all three of its premium hub airlines, the same Jevena Center seat. Um, that, that is, I think, is what we're going to see a lot more of. And um, it, you know, yeah, I, I was going to say behind the scenes, the purchasing power has been in use by uh, alliances from the beginning. I can tell you as a supplier, when um, alliances were first founded, we were approached um, initially by the alliance management um, you know, to bid for uh, product on behalf of uh, members with the option to opt out. You know, so an airline could say, well, I'm not really interested in the alliances package. I want to negotiate my own package with you. Um, but that was from the beginning uh, a strategy that they employed for um, efficiencies and scales quite smart. You know, I mean, why not? If a supplier has the potential to sell to six airlines instead of one, 
um, they're going to be, you know, a little bit more generous in their terms and conditions um, and and in their pricing. Yeah, I, I agree. But I also think that the, the counterpoint to that is that airlines are so much larger than they were back when alliances started. Um, you know, how many of those original airlines or, or the, that first and second tranche of airlines going into Star Alliance, for example, are now owned by the Lufthansa Group? <laughs> true. Um, true. So, so, you know, and I, I think that, that that is another part of this is, 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 as you say, we've got to watch these um, these airline groupings, you know, the, and, and that doesn't always work to the airline's advantage. I mean, look at Air France KLM right now where um, the, the Dutch are up in arms about the fact that Air France is dragging down the performance of KLM, which, in their perspective, it is. Um, and that's, that, 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 whole, uh, that whole discussion, I think, is, is, is very interesting, because what does Sky Team do in Europe without Air France KLM? Right. Um, if, 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 if Air France KLM you know, g- 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 turns sour. Um, yet really, really interesting. Um, interesting times. Um, but those times will be for future conversations, since that is it for today's conversation. We certainly hope you enjoyed it, and we are always keen to find out what you think, listeners. Please feel free to email me at john at runwaygirlnetwork.com with any suggestions. Thank you to our guest, Marissa Garcia. Where can folks find you uh, lurking on the internet, Marissa? We'll see on Twitter at designerjet. Perfect. Well, you can find me on Twitter at thatjohn. Everything from RGN on Twitter at RunwayGirl and, of course, at RunwayGirlNetwork.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, and thanks for listening.